Hello, hello, beautiful people. Welcome to 321 No Kidding. Bobby the Awesome here. And it's Friday. At least it's Friday when this show is releasing. And we're going to start a new series. I really enjoyed doing Recovery Dharma with you. And I think that I could have done a better job this last year and a half or whatever amount of time we've been together addressing couples things. We haven't dived deep into this. We've had we've had Wendy as a guest, for example, who's married to a gambler. We've had family members that have been involved in addiction, but there's actually a 12-step program for couples called Recovering Couples Anonymous. And I bought the book and we're going to go through it like we did with Recovery Dharma because, well, hey, it doesn't hurt to learn for starters. And I think that this is important because so many people are part of a couple. It can't hurt to get educated. So today we're going to go over a little bit of the history and how to identify if, you know, if this is something that you may want to tune in more for, try to get a better understanding of, whatever the case may be. So I'm going to go through just a little of the history. And again, I'm reading out of the recovery, Recovering Couples Anonymous book, and it's the fourth edition. And just to put it out there, they call themselves RCA, Recover, Recovering Couples Anonymous. And They've obtained permission to use the 12 steps, the 12 traditions, and the preamble from Alcoholics Anonymous in 2005 to put it in this edition. So that's where some of this is going to come from, which will be good for me, too, because honestly, I've never really gotten into the AA literature. So I imagine that I'm going to I'm going to learn some things as we go. So who they are. They're couples committed to restoring healthy communication, caring, and greater intimacy to their coupleships. They suffer from many problems, some identified and some not, some treated and some not. They also come from different levels of brokenness. Many of us have been separated or near divorce. Some are in new coupleships and seek to build intimacy together. Those are the kinds of folks that are in this program. As I went through this, I kind of highlighted the things I wanted to chat with you about today. I don't want to get into like reading verbatim. I don't know that that serves us. You might as well go get the book if we're going to do that, right? I want this to be kind of a conversation. But there are a couple examples that I am going to read. And it starts off with identifying. <clears throat> it says, these are quotes from recovering couples and if you identify with one or more of them, that Recovering Couple Anonymous may offer hope and help for you. So I imagine, and I'll have to Google and, and do a little bit of more legwork, but I imagine it's, it's probably pretty easy to find uh, an RCA meeting in this climate of, of Zoom. I'd imagine that it's probably pretty accessible. But here are some... Here are some things that the couples involved in this program are saying. And again, if, if you're relating to it, this might be uh, the sessions for you. So here goes. 
We believed that we had to agree on everything. We believed that we had to enjoy the same things and have the same interests. Being together and unhappy was safer than being alone. Oh, here we go. My normal life, right? Somebody actually almost said that verbatim to me this week. It, It looks like they may be going through a separation. And I was like, well, it was easier to stay together, wasn't it? And uh, he's like, yeah. <laughs> uh, we felt it was safer to get upset about little issues than to express our true feelings about larger ones. It was easier to blame our partners than it is to accept our own responsibility. We've talked about this in the context of character defects, right? If we're in a, a Gamblers Anonymous meeting or group or whatever the setting is, sometimes, and and I guess this could be with our family and friends, we find other people's flaws so we don't have to address ours. And it makes perfect sense that our partners would be one of those people closest to us that we do this to all the time. We feared that if we let our partners know who we really were, what we had done or what we were feeling and thinking, we'd be abandoned. We either avoided our problems or felt we were individually responsible for solving the problems we had as a couple. It was easier to hide, medicate our feelings through compulsive behavior than it was to express them. Whew, isn't that the, isn't that the crux of addiction? We gamble, we drink, we do the thing, shop, overthink, whatever the things are, generally to escape. And it would make sense that in that escape, we'd be abandoned in our partners. And I can see it being really scary, too, that instead of addressing, instead of addressing issues, right, those are those uncomfortable things, I've seen so many people through time in the rooms, they'll be talking about the money that their spouses didn't know about. There was someone very significant to me in Kansas City, and he always told the story about his recovery journey started when she found out about the second mortgage he took out without her ever knowing. She just happened to get to the mail first, and... Even then, I'm pretty sure his story went something like, well, she found out about that, but it still took a while before I told her about all the the credit cards that I had opened, you know, in somebody else's name or that she didn't know about. And I'm a believer to, to be as transparent as possible, especially, especially with your partner. Like, that's the one you're supposed to be growing with not growing apart from otherwise what's the point it goes back to one of the conversations we had I think earlier this week about being passionate about what you're in and if they abandon you for your actions then they're probably not the right person for you and if you're lying about your actions so they don't abandon you then you might not be the right person for them either so I would recommend to anyone who's trying to come out and if you're looking to quit and you've done some damage and your your partner doesn't know about it, when you come clean, get it all out. Just just do it. 
Get it so there's no more lies. Like get your clean slate and let it be what it'll be. It does not help to let a little out now. In in my head right now, I'm picturing like a cut, right? So we, we cut and then it starts to heal, but there's still more damage. So then the cut reopens. And and this cycle goes on and on until all the all the damage is in the open. And and when you think about that, the pain of when you reopen a wound, it's not pleasant. And this is the other thing. If if our partners are who we should be loving unconditionally or loving greatly or they're the person in our life that we love the most, why would we keep secrets from them? I, I remember doing so many bad things and because Davey was my best friend, I told him about the bad things because he was my best friend and he's who I wanted to share him with. I mean, I had to deal with the consequences, but he was who I wanted to tell. And did I did I lie and hide money stuff along the way? Absolutely, 100%. And I wish, I wish on some level that I had found recovery, you know, before we got divorced. It would be interesting to see how that would have played out, but I didn't. And, you know, it is what it is. But I, I definitely can appreciate that fact of your person is the person you want to tell stuff to. The next one, we found it difficult to ask for what we needed, both individually and as a couple. We dealt with conflict by not arguing at all. We equated being sexual with being intimate. Oh, that's a great call out that there are two very different things there. Sex doesn't equal intimacy. I wish I Googled what intimacy really is I think of it as as really closeness as being very vulnerable you can have sex with a stranger right and never be vulnerable and never really open your heart but when you're being intimate you're being vulnerable you're showing your insides as well as your outside and I can understand how people think they're the same thing because sex can be an intimate act as well. But if you're just having sex and going through the motions, you're not connecting. And I think intimacy has a much bigger connection component to it. We had forgotten how to play and have fun together. We were ashamed of ourselves as a couple. We worried that we were not socially acceptable, that we were inadequate parents. Wow, those voices in our heads, right? Telling the story of what other people might think of us. Never mind the fact that in this sentence, they're probably, you know, they're not enjoying each other. And and again, if you're not enjoying each other, you're not living your best life. If you can't play and laugh and just do the things that light you both up. If you're not doing that or you're letting the voices in your head dictate what you think other people are thinking of you, you're restricting yourself. And the last one, the analogy of coupleship as a dance. Let me try this again. The analogy of coupleship as a dance helps us keep our interaction in perspective. 
in a dance, my partner and I have our respective responses, whether it's a tango or a dance of avoidance, a dance of anger or a dance of denial. To charge the dance, either of us can change just one step as individuals or as a couple. Wow. So it's really about being intertwined. What, what I'm, I'm, I'm picturing dancing in my head as I'm, as I'm reading this. And if someone is really out of rhythm, it's going to mess up the whole couple, right? If you're really not in sync and you're not moving together, it's not going to be a fluid dance. It's not going to work. And as I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking, of course, a lot about Zuma dancing. There, the reason people dance with, with partners, well, I don't know if this is the reason, but it is a movement of one as a combined unit. And I think that that's part of why we need to talk about couples and how our relationships are impacted by our journey of recovery and addiction. Okay, so those were some examples. If you can relate to any of those, then this might be the place for you. I'm going to share with you a little bit about their philosophy because I'm not rewriting the book. And then we're going to end with the difference between functional and dysfunctional and do some examples. So I'm going to share with you the couple parts that I highlighted. To be successful in a 12-step program, at a minimum, there's something you need to do. In AA, you stay sober. In OA, you stay abstinent. In NA, you stay clean. And in RCA, you stay committed. Commitment, I like that. The process of healing the coupleship stimulates a feeling of hope, developing new healthy behaviors and being more respectful of each other beginning to forgive ourselves and look forward to a future. RCA believes that healing begins when we first commit to recover together. For many of them, ah, for many of us, this date has become our second anniversary. That's pretty interesting. Honesty and personal responsibility are keys to this program. Once... I'm trying to do the short version for you here. Sorry. So once they dive in to the 12 steps in this in this program, it looks like the members start seeing that they're the source of their own problems, right? It's so easy to blame the other person. And that doesn't serve us. It's not their fault, right? We are grown-ups, and if we're in a relationship, we're going to have to make big boy and big girl decisions and take ownership for our own shit. I mean, blaming other people, nobody can make us feel. No one can make us do. Yeah, in extreme torture situations or whatever, but not as a general rule. So blaming is not going to help you grow or heal or get better or stay in the kind of marriage that you probably want to be in or relationship you really want to be in. In this program, they teach people to face their problems as a couple, learning to express their true feelings, learning to fight fairly, fairly, 
What I'm trying to say is F-A-I-R-L-Y, not F-E-A-R-L-Y. Some of them are writing fair fighting contracts to help express conflict respectfully. And I guess there's some of those in the back of the book. As they grow using the steps, tools, and traditions in the coupleships, they learn to play and have fun together and be proud of themselves as couples. So again, if that's something that you want, if that's on your radar, if you want to be a good couple, if you want to be a good partner, I I suggest you stick around for this. They think of of lives in coupleships as a three-legged stool, commitment, communication, and caring, and that all the legs are important to get to the serenity, stability, and intimacy that they seek as couples. There may have been physical, sexual, spiritual, or emotional abuse, abandonment, or neglect in the past, which leads to the couples bringing baggage to their relationship. That's a lot to process. It's a lot to process for anybody. Never mind if we've been numbing it and doing the thing and not taking care of ourselves. How could we possibly take care of another person? So it's like starting at ground zero. And since I'm a believer that that we have to do the inside work to get past our addiction, we have to heal the the whatever got us to gambling in the first place. If we don't go backwards and start working on that and scoop all that shit out of our bucket, how can you, never mind filling your bucket with positive so you can live a happy life, but how can you even hold up your end of the bargain in a relationship? How is that even fair? What are you What are you doing? <sighs> yeah. Without help, anger, hurt, and mistrust are too great for these couples. At the meetings, they learn how the program works, how to practice the 12 steps as a couple, and how to replace old unhealthy behavior patterns with healthy ways of relating. The steps teach us how to look at the baggage and how to reverse the process of blame. Those are some pretty powerful things. It's funny because I've been to I've been to meetings where I think of them as like a power recovery couple. They're so freaking cute. They show up and they show up together. And I think they've actually done this. I think that's why I bought this book, actually. They shared some of the prayers in the book, some of the information in this book. So I thought it pertinent. But to be that vulnerable and honest, not only in front of your partner, but in front of a group with your partner, it's pushing through that uncomfortableness that helps you get to the other side where you can find the joy and the peace and the the inside happiness. So it's it, it goes back to doing the work, right? Okay, so here are some examples, and there's quite a few, so bear with me. So these are characteristics of functional and dysfunctional couples. So we're going to go through the examples of what dysfunctional means and functional means. So the first one, dysfunctional. Being together and unhappy is safer than being alone. Functional. Being alone is comfortable, but working together can bring greater joy and happiness. They work together because they want to. Dysfunctional. 
It is safer to be with the other people than it is to be alone and intimate with our partner with our partners. It's safer to be with other people than it is to be alone and intimate with the partner. Functional. Being alone and intimate with our partners is becoming safe because we are learning to be open and honest. Dysfunctional example number three. If we really let our partners know what we have done or what we are feeling and thinking, who we really are, we will be abandoned. Functional. When we let our partners know that we what we have done and what we've been thinking, who we are, surprisingly, it's generally met with acceptance and actually increases our intimacy. Tell them the truth. I'm telling you, there's something to it. Dysfunctional. It's easier to hide or medicate our feelings through compulsive behaviors than it is to express them. Functional. Learning to express our feelings, no longer needing to hide or medicate them. You guys get that every time I'm emotional. You get my happy, you get my sad. I guess I'm in a relationship with you. (sighs) Dysfunctional five, being enmeshed and totally dependent on each other is perceived as being in love. Functional, being interdependent adds strength to our coupleship. We were talking about the word codependency last night in group. And I guess they're trying to get rid of rid of the word because it doesn't really suit people and maybe puts them on the defensive or, you know, ruins their mindset. This is, this is interesting. The, the dysfunctional talking about what I perceive as codependent the way it's written versus being interdependent, adding strength. So it's nice that you know you can count on someone, but you don't have to to survive. That's the way I take that. Dysfunctional six, we find it difficult to ask for what we need, both individually and as couples. Functional, we are learning that it is acceptable to ask for what we need, both individually and as couples. Have you ever thought that your your partner could read your mind? <laughs> I feel like I've done this in a lot of relationships. I might need something or want something. But I never told them. So how would they know? So asking for help definitely makes sense. And I can see it contributing to the growth both individually and as couples. Because, again, if you're with the right person who wants to work on this and get through it and be a strong couple, they're going to want to help you. This is your person. Of of course they're going to want to help you. Dysfunctional. Being sexual is equal to being intimate, functional. Being lovingly sexual can enhance our coupleships, but there are many additional ways of being intimate. We talked a little about that earlier. I'm trying to think of some examples of being intimate without sex. And the first one that popped in my head was meditation. Like if you sat there and meditated or if you looked in each other's eyes or you had a very deep conversation about fears or the past. Those are the things that are showing up for me when it comes to intimacy. Dysfunctional. We either avoid our problems or we feel we are individually responsible for solving the problems we have as couples. Functional. We're learning to face our own problems, but not to feel individually responsible for solving all the problems we have as couples. It's normal for couples to have problems, that they are not immediately resolvable. I like that. 
that the functional version is you can't carry the load by yourself and recognizing that and recognizing that things aren't going to get fixed overnight. That's, that's functional. That's what this is saying. And it's so true. I, I think that this carries over in almost every aspect, just like, just like the addiction. For me, I gambled for what, 30 years. So does it get fixed in 30 days? Nope. You know, you can't undo it that way. So it's good to know that the problems can be shared as a couple and worked through as a couple and that they're not going to necessarily get fixed overnight. And it's okay to have some patience with that. I haven't read the whole book yet, but I'm guessing that they allow some grace in here. Number nine, we believe that we... dysfunctional. We believe that we must agree on everything functional. We are learning it isn't necessary to agree on everything to be happy. Oh, again, group last night. And it's funny because I went to group on Monday and Wednesday. And on Monday, the topic was spirituality. And I said my piece and, you know, landed at the universe and that my faith is in the universe and it, you know, gives me peace and I understand that I can't control everything and there's something bigger. And somebody in the group is like, it's really funny because I agree with everything you said, Bobby, but I call mine God. And, you know, he's very passionate about it being God. But then when we, when we closed, when, when we do the serenity prayer, I usually won't say God. I'll say universe if they ask me to kick it off or I'll just wait until they say God and then I'll just start talking, you know, with the grant me the serenity. So he actually, so here we are like agreeing but disagreeing and he kicked off the serenity prayer with universe, which I took as a real nice token of, you know, like it's okay, we can disagree, but we can still coexist in in a lighthearted loving way and then last night I kicked us off and I said God and addressed it for him so you know that was it's okay we don't have to agree on everything and and again this isn't even a couple but I just know that it makes better sense and it fills my heart and my brain because I learned things that my way is not the only way and if I'm never going to believe exactly what someone else believes. That's okay. Having beliefs and values don't necessarily have to do with our ability to love someone and to love someone unconditionally. Like that's the point, right? To get to that point of, of love and support without necessarily having to agree on everything. Now I will say... I've seen couples on both sides of the political spectrum (laughs) in the last eight years. That is not always good. That could be challenging if they can't figure out how to poetically agree to disagree. There's one couple that I think of, and I don't know the two news stations, but one will be in one room watching the, the, I'm going to call it the Trump station, and then the other one would have been in the other room watching the Hillary station. And, uh, you know, I could see that I could see that causing a little bit of angst amongst 
amongst a relationship, especially as volatile as it's been here in the States the last eight years as far as those topics go. All right, moving on. I actually, you know what? There's quite a few more of these. I'm halfway through. You know what? I'm going to park it there. We're going to, we'll kick off, we'll kick off the next show on this. It's just so that I don't random your ear off. Um, I'll leave a mark here on, on where I left off and give you an opportunity to think about some of this. Is this, is this what you want to work on? Are you functional or dysfunctional? Are you still keeping secrets? What do you want? Is this your partner that you want to spend the rest of your life with? Or should you bail? And I imagine that there's going to be some of you out there that are like, well, I don't have any money. I gambled it all away. I can't do this without the other person. And I will tell you, you can make the move now or you can make the move later. And it's, I don't think it's much different than that wound that keeps reopening. Whether it's going to hurt yourself or the other person, I'm not sure it's the right choice just to stick around because it's easier. If you are lit up by that person and you, they bring you joy, you know, when things are good and you feel like it's someone that you can get deep in conversation and, and deep with this growing and, and work through the stuff, then it might be worth the fight. And I'll, I'll tell you, as we go through this, so I mentioned Davey earlier, and that was me not being in recovery in a relationship. And then my first couple of years in a relationship, in recovery, that was, this is another piece of it, right? I was trying to act with recovery. It, it was the person that I would have done anything for. And I would justify behavior because I was looking at it with a recovery head on it. You know, like if it was, I don't know, he didn't say where he was going on a particular night or didn't say goodnight. And I'm just, you know, small potato stuff. Instead of me making a big deal about it, like, well, why didn't you text me goodnight last night and get in pissy pants? I'd be like, oh, you know, I'd let it go. I'm in recovery and it's not worth getting upset over. And this is this is the one and blah, blah, blah. And that was the way my brain worked. So I'm kind of interested to see how and what I learn as we read this book together and study this. Because my belief is, after going through that experience and knowing that I was capable of changing my thinking and my actions because I was that in love, because that person was that important, that I would have fought and done everything versus balancing recovery and and the other aspects, you know, you got to make sure that you're not being gaslit or abused or manipulated, all those things. And when you're dealing with two people that are dealing with addiction, it's going to be hard, right? Like it's two people with baggage. It's two people with with things. And, and chances are there's probably a component of mental illness I mean, statistically, I'm not making assumptions. It's just that that seems to be there. There's going to be different sets of values. There's going to be different levels of secrets and guilt and shame. And and that's what you have to decide is, is the person, you know, if it's if that person's not who 
lights you up and who you want to be with forever, maybe it's not even worth doing all that digging. Maybe it's just going to make you miserable if you do that digging with them. Maybe you, you cut your cut your losses, so to speak, and, and do the work with yourself. I am 100% an advocate for not being in a relationship the first year in recovery. 100%. Even though I broke my own rule, I, I totally believe that and have always believed that. And now I actually believe it should probably be closer to two years. When I think about when you're working your recovery, the pace you can change and grow it would be really hard to do that distracted. Like in the beginning of my recovery, I was, you know, even in the relationship, we did a lot of recovery together. Um, and that was, that was helpful. And our conversations were, and I guess this is part of why it stung so bad, right? Like that was the most vulnerable I've ever been having these heartfelt conversations, doing the digging, having a level of intimacy, 1,200 freaking miles apart, right? Talking about all the stuff that comes with with gambling and not gambling and life and all of that, where all that stuff lands. You're going to have to make those decisions as we go along. And here's what I want you to know. First of all, you're worth it. I might tell you that often. It's because it's true. But you are. You're worth protecting yourself and taking care of yourself. And the second thing is you're capable if you want to do the work. So that's the part you're going to have to decide without my help. I, I, I don't know if your person is the person or the right person. I, I don't know that. Only you are going to be able to answer that and know that and, what, and know what you want to fight for. Are you fighting for you? Are you fighting for your relationship? Are you in the relationship so you don't have to worry about whatever the compulsive behavior was, right? Could, could, could your partner be your compulsive behavior? That's another question. I hope we dig into this stuff. Again, I haven't finished the book. But there's a lot of components about being in a relationship, in recovery, or with one person still using or doing the thing. I mean, there's there's a lot of different situations. So this is going to be great. Um, so I look forward to doing this. So we'll do this for a few weeks till we, till we finish it together. Uh, I do have a lot of interviews scheduled and lined up. But I think we'll work on this through April because it's an important topic that, like I said, I feel like I've kind of neglected you on it. And I don't know if it's just because as long as I've been podcasting, I've been not in a relationship, so it hasn't been a focus. So, yeah, let's make it a focus. Let's talk about it. Let's see if we can get through whatever growing and hurdles we have surrounding relationships and get a better understanding. Let's do that together. All right. I love you, beautiful people. Until next week. 